This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Plan A, powered by StaffStat. It's through their ongoing partnership and generous support that we are able to host our thought-provoking podcast. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to learn more about Plan A, powered by StaffStat. I think our young Canadians are a powerful group. We need to get them either excited slash angry about ageism and capture their energy, their technology savviness to promote a message that cuts across provincial boundaries, international boundaries, and make this a global issue. This is Coming of Age, meeting the needs of our aging population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I'm also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. In this episode, I'm delighted to introduce you to John Yip, President and CEO of SE Health, a Canadian not-for-profit social enterprise with a mission to bring excellence and innovation and hope and happiness to home care, seniors' lifestyle, and family caregiving. SE Health's vision is to forever impact how people live and age at home across Canada and around the world. That may sound like a tall task, but John is widely known as a transformative values-based leader, and he's the right person at the right time to provide innovative leadership in home care and to be part of shaping a new vision for aging. We covered a lot of ground in our discussion about what seniors need, what needs to change, and how we can get there. And I hope you'll enjoy this discussion with John as much as I did. Welcome everyone to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. I'm your host, Donna Duncan, and I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by John Yip, the President and CEO of SE Health, a large home and community care organization uh, that uh, serves Canada and abroad. So really excited to have John join us. Most recently, John was the president and CEO of Kensington Health in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And and I can say that I've known John for quite a number of years because I've had the privilege of working with him when I ran a large children's mental health organization and he was leading work to uh, support better integrating services in a community called St. Jamestown in Toronto, one of the densest and most diverse uh, communities that we have in Canada. I think John's in a unique spot today, brings an extraordinary skill set as a consultant, uh, as an operator uh, and leader and an innovator in our healthcare system. I'm really excited to be able to think about how how are we going to respond to what we're facing today with uh, the baby boomers uh, in Ontario, Canada alone today, and I'm talking to you in August of 2022, we have almost 40,000 people waiting for long-term care on our wait list in Ontario. We know that we have significant staffing shortages. uh, And we know that as we think about home care, how do we think about home care within the context of the geography that is Ontario and Canada? So with that, I I really want to um, start, John, by asking you the question, 
what are your thoughts about how we're going to meet the needs of this aging demographic? How, how do we take a population-based approach uh, and start thinking differently about how we deliver care? Well, thanks, Donna, for inviting me to your amazing podcast. I'm a big fan and a listener of season one. Now, how do you solve this problem? Well, let me just say this. I think we have sectorized our healthcare system. So we talk about long-term care sector, which you represent, uh, home care sector, primary care sector, acute care sector, and it fragments the funding, the needs of our shared patients, clients, and residents. And instead of thinking about one system, we fragmented it. Yet, it is the same population we are serving. Different care settings, but the same level of care we want to provide to ensure all Ontarians, Canadians, are healthy and aging well. This pandemic has really shown us the vulnerabilities across our healthcare system, which we don't need to repeat in broad terms. But I feel that the way out of this is not a sector modernization, home care modernization on its own, is really thinking about this as a system challenge with system solutions. And I think in order to do that, it does require some structural changes, some funding changes, but more importantly, a mindset of how we think about aging and aging in our communities. Wow. So so I'm fascinated. So for our listeners, John is uh, also an Ironman and athlete and, and marathoner and uh, I think survived the, the first rounds of the waves of the pandemic through your running. This is a marathon and there's a lot of ambiguity about how we're going to reach the destination. And I know moving from long-term care and hospice to home care now, you're bringing a very different lens as you're thinking about uh, how these pieces might fit together in a different kind of way and what, and what the roadmap actually looks like to get there. Can you maybe speak a bit about what do you see some of those initial steps as being? You know, the routes can vary, but how do we get there so that we actually accomplish the actual distance? I love uh, triathlon analogies or marathon analogies. And there's a mantra that I use when I'm hurting really bad in these events. And it's just one step forward. That's it. And if you're feeling good, slow down. And it is about incremental marginal gains and not sprinting to the finish line. So I have a very realistic approach around our challenges. And our population is very clear that came out of the pandemic that people want to live, age, and receive care in their own homes if they can. That long-term care is a destination for some but not for all. And so if people want to stay in their homes, is our home care system set up to do that? And it isn't. It's very short-term, task-based. It doesn't take into account the broader comprehensive needs of what that individual requires to have a good quality of life and to age 
in their own communities. As you know, I support building more housing for seniors and housing includes long-term care. It includes supportive housing, independent living, assisted living, hospice, shelters. So I take housing in broad context. But the reality is to build 30,000 new long-term care beds is going to take a lot of time, a lot of capital, a lot of creativity. So in the meantime, we're perpetuating some of these sector fragmentation I talked about earlier. We can't build enough homes. People need to be in those long-term care homes, but we haven't invested in home care, but people want that. So in some way, we've kind of created this problem for ourselves by over-investing in some areas, yet under-investing in others like home care. With a system approach, I think there can be a recalibration and allocation of capital to support the system, where the ideas and concepts that have originated from long-term care, like long-term care at home, is a concept that can be applied in home care. Let's take, for example, some research that our SE Health Research Center have done. And the data is very clear that there's a lot of overlap between those on the long-term care wait list and those that could be served at home. There's a profile that they call Helen, a generic name, generic profile that is a chronic disease management type profile that has the components of daily pain, cognitive impairment, caregiver distress, very common profile for the residents that live in long-term care, but could be effectively served in the community. So while there's a capacity challenge in long-term care for the Helens of this province, there can be other alternatives that can be provided in the home with the concepts like long-term care at home. But some of the concepts of long-term care, which OLTCA and others have been uh, advocating of four hours of nursing care a day, which the Helen profile does require, they don't get if Helen lives at home. Instead, what Helen gets is probably at most 35 minutes of nursing care. So there's that dichotomy where if Helen were at home, she's not getting the care that she needs, and she's one fall away from being admitted to the ER, and the whole cycle repeats itself. But if we created a system where we are actually providing long-term care at home and harmonize the care that's required based on what Helen needs, we're actually affecting change in the system in a marginal way, one step forward, and moving at a pace that is reflective of that particular individual's needs in her own community. John, you and I have spoken about this. The, the average age of an admission into, quote, a long-term care home in Ontario today is from a hospital setting is 82. And that individual will have multiple issues. They'll have uh, some form of dementia, COPD, arthritis, diabetes, perhaps end-stage renal failure, congestive heart failure, very complex needs. And with 
40,000 people waiting for long-term care. And, and to your point, the existing capacity of the system isn't sufficient to meet the needs of those individuals. How do we support more of a population-based approach, to your point, uh, look at how we work together and trust one another and reimagine what home care is as well as what long-term care is. When I used to think about long-term care, I equated it to a nursing home. Since joining SE Health, my aperture has widened around what long-term care really means. It's not just a nursing home. It's the full continuum. And the research that our research center has produced has coined the term long-term life care, which includes long-term care. It includes hospice. It includes hospital as all part of the journey. But there's a distinction that's made that where we have designed the system as hospital to home, this takes it as home as the starting point. You may have a different type of journey, but it ends at home. And the home may not be your primary house, apartment, condo. It could be long-term care where you end up. But when you take that mindset around home to home and designing a system around that, then the interdependencies that you mentioned become much more clear rather than a unidirectional hospital to home, hospital to long-term care idea. And so when we open up that aperture in a definition of what long-term care life care includes, it includes the medical complexity, the clinical services that are provided. It includes the psychosocial, but it's much broader than that. It's the socialization, the community, the intimacy of those relationships, the interaction with that individual within their own family unit and beyond. The mental health component has often been omitted from the conversation. It's very much part of that life care concept that it is very much interdisciplinary. How do we not overly medicalize individuals and how do we not lose that focus on living in life to your point, John? I'm, I'm really curious would would love your re- reflections on how do we support that living, those goals of living and care, those goals of, of a system approach, supporting people and continuing to live at home, supporting family caregivers, when we know there are vast stretches of uh, territory in, in Ontario and across Canada, our geography often doesn't lend itself well to more structured home care. The distances create real barriers. We're looking at uh, cost of living and inflation costs today for home care by virtue of gasoline prices and, and inflation coming out of the pandemic. What are the opportunities for us to better support individuals in their home environment, in those settings? We can't take a cookie cutter approach across the province. And there was a recent uh, report published in StatsCan. In rural areas, the need for home care is much higher. Where there are socioeconomic issues, the need for home care is also higher. The rural-urban divide is something I've been thinking about. And so there is no cookie-cutter approach. What works for Ottawa, Toronto, London, Hamilton is not necessarily going to work in Timmins, Thunder Bay, Sudbury and smaller communities. 
and particularly indigenous communities as well. So I think we really do need to take a population-based approach, really looking at the unmet needs of the individuals. And what I'm learning too, <laughs> it's funny, I've been in healthcare for 25 years and I learn something every single time, that my impressions of home care before coming into home care are vastly different now that I'm inside home care. And I'm going to say something that some of your listeners might just laugh at, that the clients that receive home care are variable. There is a wide spectrum of individuals that require different types of home care. By taking a population-based approach, we can tease that out. And our research group has done this using interi data into six client profiles that are stratified based on risk, on different domains of uh, mobility, uh, uh, ADLs or activities of daily living, quality of life, uh, medical needs, um, cognitive behaviors, and so on, that there's different needs for different groups. So on one end of the spectrum, it is those very seriously not well individuals, almost all seniors, um, who are palliative and end of life that requires significant supports. And the medical complex profile is not too far behind. And so the type of home care that's required for those individuals who should be in long-term care but aren't because of the wait lists and capacity of the sector, uh, that they're at home. And so there's a different type of service that's required for that population versus a generally well individual who has a hip replacement in his discharge and requires six visits from the physiotherapist uh, for post-surgical rehab, that's a different type of home care versus another profile where it's a older adult who is living alone and requires some basic needs around meal prep and house cleaning maybe once a week, once every two weeks, uh, which is a very different type of service offering as well. So I've just outlined three different profiles that reflect the variability of what home care consists. And then when you back up to around the funding, again, there are different funding packages that can be allocated from self-directed from the, the last group that I mentioned that just needs, needs some support, that it doesn't require government a stewardship of those funds. It's self-directed. Individual can choose the types of services, a different home care provider up to a limit versus that medically complex individual that requires significant supports that may require a bit of care coordination, service navigation for the entire care team, which will come from multiple uh, organizations. That's a different funding profile. HHR is one of the fundamental issues that each and every one of us is facing today around the world, not just in Ontario, but across Canada and North America and uh, around the globe. We have this demographic boom and we know that individuals want to stay at home as long as possible and live in their homes and age in, age in place to their best of their abilities. Uh, and we know that many 
a large majority will be able to, but we also know that there are those who won't. And there are those who are going to need hospitals. How do we think differently around about how do we use those specialized resources, the nurse, our nurses, our nurse practitioners, our, our RPNs, our physicians and other specialists in communities and perhaps take a different line of sight around how do we collectively as a community come together and think about how we're going to support the people who live here, whether it's in their homes, whether it's in hospital, whether it's in a long-term care setting or assisted living. There is a path. It's bumpy. It's weeded over um, and it goes in circles. And I, I think it is a philosophical shift that we as Canadians need to make. There are other countries around the world that have adopted a seniors first, older adults first philosophy, which then reflects on how policy decisions are made. They flip the paradigm, becomes part of the cultural lexicon of those cultures. I'm Asian and one of the first uh, things when I was dating my better half and getting serious, uh, the first question to get out of the way was, and I knew it was coming, this question is, are you going to be okay if my parents come and live with us when they age? And the answer, which has always been ingrained in my family and in my culture was, absolutely. It's like not even, no debate. And so when we were trying to find and afford our first home, we were looking at uh, suites to accommodate our parents, potentially. Our parents said, I'm too messy. <laughs> too loud, got too much gear, so they don't want to live with us. But the the point being that it was a cultural thing that we have in our culture to be able to take care of our older loved ones, recognizing that not everyone has that privilege or opportunity. But we see in countries like Denmark, where the spend on long-term care and the number of long-term care beds per capita is quite low where the investment is uh, in home care, creating natural occurring retirement communities, which uh, was mentioned again by Dr. Bob Bell in season one, and creating those structures that aren't 350 bed long-term care homes, but smaller houses, you can age in place and basically follow the trajectory of that individual's needs over a two, one to two decade period. And so creating that socialization uh, between residents, common kitchen areas, design features that allow the community to come together in central squares with group activities, just like in in long-term care, but done in a non-facility-based environment. I think those concepts are not new uh, and have been written about extensively. And more recently, I believe it's Alberta and Quebec that are adopting that approach in addition to investing into long-term care. And so we're going to start to see a shift around how people want to live and in turn, our mindset of how we view aging as a different conversation, ageism, is something that we need to tackle. Like any other ism, racism, 
and so on is a cultural phenomenon. And I think we're not quite there here in Canada, but I think the ability to carve that path that you talk about does require that grassroots mindset. It's a social movement, less so a policy, top-down decision. And the question is, how do we create that social movement as healthcare providers beyond providing the service, thinking about the hours of care, the contracts, the procurement, where to procure medical supplies, uh, and raising and elevating the conversation about how to create that social movement? It's such a great question. I was recently at a conference and I was uh, asked, the comment was made by a municipal, an elected municipal official that uh, some younger constituents uh, in his community had asked him, had had made the comment, well, I I work at Starbucks. Why should I have to pay for their health care? To your earlier point around, you know, the silos, the structural silos in the healthcare system, we we seem to have siloed our populations as well. So whether that's one cultural group versus another, uh, younger populations versus our seniors, how do we find, to your point, how do we create that movement and that momentum where instead of everyone being another, we, we, we actually define we and, and uh, be committed to working together within the context of our local communities. I, I know in Denmark, which is off-sited as, as a great example with a smaller accommodation and those natural occurring communities, including intergenerational activities within those, those communities, Denmark made primary care the gatekeeper of their system. They actually closed two-thirds of their hospitals uh, over 20 years ago. So not a hospital-centric sex, uh, system of care, very much anchored in primary care and and in living and very much on a different culture of aging. I find we're, we're afraid to age. <laughs> and uh, somehow we've got to find a way to create this movement, John, uh, to have people not be afraid of getting old, uh, to support people living and living in their communities and living well, to your point. You know, I I think it's going to be a challenge for leaders such as yourself to start to change the dialogue and model the kind of behavior that uh, we need to see, but also model the debate. How do we find a common vision as to what that destination is going to be? And if we can define that and find our agreement in that, because I don't think we're that far off on it, but we're not talking about it. Oh, Donna, you're killing me. (laughs) These are very profound questions. And I know SE Health uh, is trying to initiate some of those conversations and culture change. We have an initiative called Courage, uh, and it's uh, bringing together national partners to have this exact dialogue with older adults and bringing together a consortium of uh, academic centers, uh, seniors advocacy groups, governments across this country, and providers to have a wholesome conversation about what the future of aging should be. And it takes on a various um, domains of conversation from di- the digital divide and tackling those issues um, and uh, from 
social care to life care to health care, housing and, and elements of what it requires to age gracefully in Canada. That's one strategy, convening uh, thought leaders to begin to crack the code on how to really get this into the public consciousness. Two, I'm quite excited by the appointment of the federal chief nursing officer. Um, I think uh, having a national healthcare leader at that stage can also set the tone federally and work with our provincial chief nursing officers uh, around that and creating that mindset of where how healthcare intersects with, with aging and life care. Three, I think our young Canadians are a powerful group. We've seen social movements created by our youth, Black Lives Matter, as an example. We need to get them either excited slash angry about ageism and capture their energy, their technology savviness to promote a message that cuts across provincial boundaries, international boundaries, and make this a global issue. You know, us old dogs, Donna, I mean, uh, we can continue on this good fight and we have for decades and there are others like us that are continuing to do so. But I think it's the voice of our youth that can speak for a different generation that they look up to, that they know the older generation has sacrificed things so they can live the lives that they're currently living and about to live. So I think those are some ideas that we're working on and I'm definitely thinking through beyond the technical components of delivering healthcare on a widget basis in our communities and elevating that conversation so that it becomes much more weighty. Your questions are weighty and they require weighty solutions and it requires the space and time to be able to think through this and also to partner with like-minded organizations and individuals to do it. This is not a one-person crusade. It can't be. There's just too much work to be able to do this as one person, one organization. Well, and I am, you know, so delighted to have you with SE Health now. So that we've and and we're working with our home care partners as as we try to get on top of of the crisis that is before us today. One of the, to your point around younger people, I I, I actually, I, my goddaughter who's who's. Uh, university now, I asked her what she wanted to be a couple of years ago, and she told me her job didn't exist yet. <laughs> and and that kind of faith and openness to an, an unknown and to a reimagining how how we might work in the future. One one piece that we're certainly committed to to asking right now is we've asked our colleges and our universities and government is what is the future of work? How does our younger generation want to work? How do they see things working? Oftentimes they're the ones who can skip past so many different pieces of the existing architecture to 
build something entirely new so that it's not uh, tinkering with what exists, but rather finding, actually constructing a different, an entirely different route to getting to the answer. How we can engage with them and their creativity and their thinking with new technologies and helping bring them along as part of the solution very values-driven, mission-oriented generation that we have coming be, coming behind us, giving them that purpose, giving them that platform and empowering them where we don't have to have all the answers. And you use the, the, the words either getting them mobilized or getting them angry. I'm going to challenge you on the anger. I think there's so much anger. I would hope that uh, it would be a, a healthy, a healthier sentiment. Like, how do we bring hope and excitement and opportunity and purpose? And I, I think you've done a remarkable job in channeling that 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 very mission driven, thoughtful, uh, purposeful leadership and, and culture within your organizations. So I'm going to challenge you. John, yep, to help us harness the, the positivity as, as we try to, to move this path forward. I couldn't agree more, Donna. So one of the things that I really intrigued me about SE Health was part of its mission, vision values of spreading hope and happiness. I rolled my eyes at the onset. It's like, oh, how cliche, so corporate, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you know what? I think I've drunk the Kool-Aid and this is what we all do in healthcare, life care, is spread that hope and happiness. And so I completely agree with you that if we can get our youth to see what hope and happiness can do and harness that energy, that the outcomes are limitless. But at the same time, while you're quite right too, there is a lot of anger now uh, that it does create that burning platform. That hopefully it doesn't persist the anger, the fury, and and but and it flips and translates into hope and happiness at some point. But as you know, history has shown to create those social movements, it usually starts in a negative place. And with the hope that it doesn't always have to, that history can be remade, where it stops, starts and stops and ends at a place of goodness. And that would be the hope that our older adults are given that opportunity to live a life of dignity and respect, to age in their communities and have their loved ones, their caregivers, their family members be part of that positive journey and also help spread that hope and happiness, which then leads into a very different philosophical shift of how we view our older adults and how we view ageism. So you're on point, Donna Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to say it's, um, uh, you're an inspiring a very inspiring leader, John. Uh, it's uh, it's been such a privilege to work with you over the the, the years, and to work with you in, in wearing where each of us have been wearing different hats. So thank you so much for your time, uh, and uh, I'm really excited to uh, see where uh, home care and seniors care and that that broader continuum. Uh, 
ends up moving towards. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Donna. And thanks to the OLTCA for putting on this podcast. It was such a privilege to talk to John Yip at this pivotal time as communities and countries around the world mobilize to meet the increasing needs of their aging populations. It was great to hear John's thoughts about creating a more comprehensive and less siloed continuum of living, care, and supports for seniors, recognizing that every individual may have a range of different needs and preferences. It's not just about policy, although that is important. It's also about tackling ageism and the barriers it creates, not only for individuals, but for how we approach aging and support seniors in our society. This is a topic we'll be sure to explore further in future episodes. Thank you for joining us. This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Plan A, powered by StaffStat. Does your home have a staffing strategy in place? StaffStat automates your shift filling process and intuitively predicts shift needs. Plan A works in tandem with StaffStat, offering homes a backup staffing model that supports employees and keeps residents safe and cared for. Learn more at jointheateam.com. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate our show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Keep well. Keep well.